1: Welcome to The Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca in the Rerouted podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hi, everyone. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to the Rerouted podcast here on Ramdas's Be Here Now Network. It's really lovely to have you with us today uh, with a very special guest, an author, uh, a scholar, and really um, an educator around issues that pertain to Race and class, and the construction and the intersection of all the ways in which we sort of came to this moment, got to be in this moment as a society structurally, and um, ways in which we can perhaps learn how to unpack some of that, so that we can move into the next era with a greater sense of perhaps embodied integrity and um, and balance and equity. Uh, Ian Henry Lopez is uh, the author of at least a couple of books that I have here, tons of them. Uh, white by law, the legal construction of race, which is fascinating, and also dog whistle politics, how coded racial appeals have reinvented racism and wrecked the middle class. He's the John H. Ball Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and is a senior fellow at Demos. So welcome, Ian. It's so nice to see you today on Rerooted.
2: Thank you. I'm very glad to be here.
1: Thank you. Um, you know, I'll just acknowledge the land that I'm on, which is Nipmuc uh, land here in Massachusetts, where I'm staying right now, and um, also say that I'm Haitian, Dominican, and Italian American. So I'm of mixed ancestry and background. And you had just mentioned to me in the in the off-camera piece that um, you grew up in Hawaii and, um, and how that and your mixed ethnicity also kind of informs uh, some of the ways in which you 've been able to do some of your work, so i don 't know if you just want to start with a little bit about how you got into this and and why this yeah. became a calling for you and
2: yeah sure so so my father's white he 's fourth generation irish uh, irish american his family over generations moved across you know from the eastern seaboard across the upper Midwest, bouncing between the United States and Canada, and arriving in uh, eastern washington and then he Um, um, studied to be a Jesuit for a while and was a a professor of English at a Jesuit college in San Francisco. My mother is from El Salvador. Um, She was the first woman in her family to get a college education. She came up to San Francisco and they met, um, a mixed mixed race couple, uh, and they moved to Hawaii. So I was born and raised in Hawaii along with an older brother. And I think growing up in Hawaii, You know, Hawaii is a place in which mixed race couples are really common. There's, there's, you know, it's something of a melting pot. Yes, there's also a lot of racism, but more, more importantly, there's a lot of frank discussion of racial differences, conducted in a way that simultaneously acknowledges that race is real, but that race is not destiny. Right? That, that, yeah, there are racial differences. No, they're not fixed. No, they're not. Unchangeable. No, they don't create uh, a a hierarchy. Um, And so, when I was growing up, we talked about race all the time. Now, I went from there to undergraduate in St. Louis, Missouri, and that's one of the most starkly segregated places in the country. Both the location, but also the university I was attending. Wow! And I kept trying to talk to people about it, and they're like, "Sorry." we're racially progressive. We don't notice race. <laughs> and Colorblindness. Colorblindness as an etiquette to say, w- w- you know, we can get past racism by pretending that we don't notice the fact that we are, in fact, a starkly segregated, hierarchically organized society. Right? And so that really pushed me into race studies.
1: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you for that. I think it just helps set the context of like why we're interested in this and sort right. of what our, you know, what our own social location and our own positionality has to inform, to inform us. Um, you know, you, you studied, um, you studied law and, and and you drilled down and you sort of looked at, well, what is this business of whiteness or becoming white or what does it mean to be white? Or is it white yeah. skin or is this biological? No. Is it constructed? Maybe. Yes. How?
2: Well, there's, there's really, you know, you can kind of, you can see my biography coming through there too. In in Hawaii, I was just I was hopahowli, which is this generic term for people who are part white. Um on the mainland today, hopahowli is typically Asian and white, but in Hawaii it was just anybody who was mixed with white. Like me. Okay. Yeah, okay. And then I get to the mainland and people are confused about where to put me. And I would come to understand years later when I was in graduate school at Princeton. So I went through these series of experiences, right? Like, like people's first impression of me on the mainland, in in, not in California, where there's a lot of dark-skinned Latino people. Okay, but but Missouri. Then when I went to graduate school on the East Coast, people's initial impression of me was, "This guy's not white," but they weren't clear what I was. So then they had to resort to other clues, and other clues included. My accent, my demeanor, the clothes I was wearing. Um, in, in, I, I stopped several times by the police. And in those encounters, other clues included my, my state driver's license. And so I remember one episode in particular. I was walking along the waterfront in Baltimore, and I was stopped by the police, and it was a very aggressive encounter as it started with the, with the police saying, come over here, boy. right? It was just really, it was like wow. very can. You know, let's see some ID. Showed him, and I had this Hawaii state driver's license, and the guy suddenly he reframed how he understood my race, uh, and and suddenly I was like exotic, and da da da, and I went there for my honeymoon, and I love it. Welcome to Baltimore, and it really helped me understand race isn't something that's fixed in us. Race is a social practice. It's a set of understandings. It's something that is circulates in the culture but it is interpreted and imposed by different actors at different times in different ways. That is, I was living the reality of race as a social construction. And so it really pushed my scholarship in that direction. And one of the most dramatic instances of race being socially constructed is in U.S. naturalization law. Because in one of the first acts that Congress passed in 1790, Congress said the only people who can naturalize as citizens, that is, the only people who are foreign citizens who can become American citizens, uh, are people who are white. But if you have to be white in order to naturalize, that means the courts have to decide who's white. And because judicial decisions require some explanation for the reasoning, so that that reasoning can be extended in later cases, they not, not only had to decide who was white, but they had to articulate why someone was white. And it's just the most fascinating body of cases as courts try and give a sort of a veneer of biology, of inevitability, of naturalness to what is inherently a social process they themselves are engaged in inventing.
1: Wow. Yeah. I think that's so um, important to note that um, it's not biological. It's true that we have different melanated levels of pigmentation. It's true that based on um, systemic oppression and constant stress, there may be social determinants of health that are differential around um, what have now become known as different racial groups um, or, or even class groups or economic groups, right? Mm-hmm. Because that, of course, is a huge factor, which often is correlated to, but not always necessarily associated with race, right? Right. Um, and so we we have these these things, but I think what you 're pointing to is that this is a construct that was created legally and sustained legally over time and um I wonder if you could maybe start to talk a little bit about that white by law, the legal construction of race um this business of citizenship, who gets to be american
2: well i want to I want to start by really emphasizing a point that you were just making because it 's so important there's a there 's this um a way of understanding the idea that race is socially constructed, that, that it's just, it couldn't be more wrong. You know, it's, it's, it's a move that says, well, if race isn't biological, it's not real. It doesn't exist. And, and that's just, obviously, that's just false. Race is not real as biology. Race is unbelievably real as a set of social practices. Mm. We can't look at what our society does to people the the meanings, the truncated life chances, um, the 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 wanton dehumanization. We can't watch the 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 casual murder of George Floyd, and then say race isn't real. That's race. It's just that that's not biology. It's what our human society is doing. And I think one of the important points there is. Race was always an attempt as a set of ideas, as an ideology to displace responsibility from what we ourselves were doing. So race was a story to explain why genocide and displacement, genocide and dispossession of Native Americans was inevitable and natural and that we weren't responsible for it. Race was a story to explain why the enslavement of millions of people, the kidnapping of millions of people from their homes, their transportation across the Atlantic and their enslavement here in North America was natural and inevitable and we weren't responsible for it. That is, the claim that race is a biology is a way to insulate us from responsibility from what we've done, what our society's done. And the move to say, no, this is a social construction, race is a social practice, is a way of saying, and we are responsible for what we've done. And in some ways, That's condemnatory. But in other ways, it's also emancipatory. It's also hopeful. Because what human society has done, human society can undo. Human society can repair. And this is one of the most powerful things, I think, that Martin Luther King said. He was talking about the damage that had been done to Black families through segregation, through restricted job opportunities. Um, and he said, you know, that the damage is real, but it's not a function of being black. It's not a function of biology. It's what we've done. And, wh- and he said, and what man has done, man can undo. Man right. can repair. And that's the point: to, to take seriously the social construction, not to deny the realities of racism, but to properly locate the origins of this hierarchy of these harms, and to say. We must take responsibility. We must engage in repair.
1: Right, beautiful. Yes, and thank you for emphasizing that point, which was what I intended to say, but maybe you can come across quite well, you that did. way. You did. You did. absolutely. It just reminded me of
2: how important that point is. Well, it
1: is because I think that what happens is, is I'll be in a lot of settings, and I work in a lot of therapeutic settings, trauma trauma healing settings, mindfulness settings, and um, you know, work with a lot of communities of color as well as people who have um, white racial advantage or or you know, light. Skin privilege, even or interracial couples, um, you know, uh, just a variety of, of populations, um, along with the LGBTQIAP plus uh, TGNC population, like just a lot of different kinds of folks that have been oppressed by or sent, you know, marginalized by this system, which centers a certain kind of person and doesn't, you know, have everyone fitting in there. But I, I right. guess, I guess, what I'm, which I'm glad. Um, <laughs> Well, um, but not glad about the oppression about that. Um, I'm glad about the, the the fact that we're all beautifully unique. Um, right. When when you when you talk about uh, the legalization, the same, like you know, the the endorsement, if you will, of um, legally what has happened in order to create, foment, and sustain this, and then we can talk about how this lives in culture, this lives in right. social right. interactions. But can you talk about some of the the legal pieces that? People probably just don't know because it's not like they're taught in our textbooks.
2: Yeah, I think that the, that the two things are happening simultaneously. That is, social practices are arising very often um, propelled by self-interested groups. So, you know, what is going to be the relationship between um, uh, farm owners, plantation owners, and unfree labor? Um, how can they maintain that system? How can they justify it? And it gives rise to slavery that simultaneously is in a feedback loop with law, right? so, that, so that initially you get some laws that say, well, we're going to prohibit fornication between Christians and non-Christians. And you can see that there's this initial move to say, what's going to define somebody as subject to enslavement, subject to a lifetime of unfree labor, unpaid, uncompensated labor, themselves and their posterity is whether they're Christian or or Christian was being counterposed to savage. Mm. But it turns out people can convert pretty easily. It was too unstable a base. So then pretty soon you get to see these laws begin to, these new terms begin to crop up like Negro and white to replace Christian and savage. Now, even Negro and White; those are still uns- those are still unstable terms, but right? because there's mixing going on, some of it is is rooted in genuine affection. Right? It's important to recognize that human beings are human beings, and we recognize and are capable of loving other human beings. A lot of it was a function of power—the power that the plantation owners had. Over these people who had been kidnapped and stripped of their identity, taken from their homes, taken away from their families, stripped of all power. In that context, what was the dividing line? And initially, it was something like, well, if you were more than three quarters of African descent. And then later on, as the system developed and became more rigid, it moved to a, any drop of blood sort of rule. Right? But this is happening in law but as a codification of what's happening culturally. And it's it's important that law is learning from culture because law is simultaneously legitimizing culture. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the most dramatic example of that right now is the way in which Donald Trump talks about law and order and crime breakers. And what he's communicating there is the power of law to give a seemingly neutral explanation for why these sorts of people are outside the bounds of our care, that, that, why these people are, in, in significant ways, not like us. They are lawbreakers. They are felons, or they are in prison. They are incarcerated. A law carries with it this incredible normative force, this, this legitimacy, like, hey, they broke the law. As in, they are fundamentally different from us, right? Right. And that's a lot of the work that race does. When it's like, well, the law is unjust. The law is unfair. The way it's being applied is is designed to reinforce social hierarchies. That's much more difficult for people to grasp. So there's that, the, the cultural power of law. It too is a cultural institution, but it pretends to stand above culture and carry a lot of normative legitimacy.
1: When you're saying that, what I'm thinking, I'm sort of building this little pyramid, law and culture. And then what I see on top is economics. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put is, economics up there. I'd put power up there. Power. Okay. I right, was going to say uh, like elitism or cl- like yes. greed. Like That's what yes. I mean by it when I, when I mean it. That, that yes. it really is in service to um, financial extraction, which is wealth, money, power.
2: I think that the financial is a big part of it—the um, the resources, the extraction, um, the hoarding. Right, it, it, that's a big part of it. But I think that power is its own thing. Um, mm-hmm. So you think about someone like Donald Trump, or you, you think about um, um, you know these different billionaires—Mark um, um, Zuckerberg. Um, you know, I mean, does the money matter anymore? I mean, at a certain scale, the wealth is just so immense, and the length of our lifetime so short. It's just there's no it's it's not really about the resources anymore. It's about power, power over others, power vis a vis others in in competition, bending others to your will, right? And, And so, and the reason I want to put it in terms of power is I want I. Sometimes when we talk about finances and when we talk about economics there's the tendency to strip away the cultural element so to really start talking about um, uh, uh, dollars and cents and you know the the, the, the the sort of cold calculation power is instead a fundamentally human phenomena it draws on things like status and competition and threat and insecurity. Um, it draws very heavily on culture. We're all engaged in, in, you know, power is a huge problem for human societies. We all need a little bit of it. We need enough so that we can make decisions, exercise agency, take care of others, be generous towards others, uh, uh, take care of others when they need it, be in a position to accept help from others when we need it. We need some, but we need to create institutions that guard against the few having too much. Abusive power. Abusive power.
1: Yeah. I love what you're saying because as a therapist, so much of it is, you know, when you're talking about power, um, it crops up in, in, in any kind of a, a therapeutic setting, the relational dynamics. The mm-hmm. relational dynamics between a couple, a friend group, a family, whatever it is, who has the power, who doesn't, you know, and then you broaden that out into the community, the town, the city, the village, the state, Then you look at it larger. Yeah, go ahead.
2: How the power is exercised and how the power is justified. Mm. And often the biggest challenge to confronting power is confronting the way in which power is justified, because that justification is very often designed to get those of us without power to acquiesce to our relative powerlessness. Right? You know, This is sort of fancy language, but what we're trying to say here is the writ exercise or the powerful elite exercise so much power in our society, not through direct violence, not through direct force, but instead through stories about how they deserve to be rich, they deserve to be powerful, and we don't, right? And so it's the stories that we tell. And I I can imagine, though, this is in my area, that that even in relationships, it's, you know, there's the challenge of who has the power, but there's also the challenge of how that power is justified. Mm. You know, I'm the one that's um, making all the money or, you know, whatever the whatever the stories we tell to explain to the other person that they should agree that some of us have much more power than others.
1: Yeah. So interesting because, I mean, as you're saying that, I'm thinking to my grandparents, Italian immigrants um, that were, uh, you know, my grandfather had five kids and he was a hard worker, teamsters, you know, the whole thing, worked in a factory for 45 years, but 44 actually, but that that he wouldn't let my grandmother work, you know, he, he wouldn't let her work, even though she wanted to work. He wouldn't let her work out of the home because he was the one who needed to be the man of the house and how that was the thing then. Right. right. And now we have two households in, you know, two person incomes just to make probably the equivalent of whatever that right. salary, true too. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so it's just interesting because that was sort of like, I'm the man, I'm the one who says it's my way or the highway kind of a philosophy. And he was great in a lot of ways, but it was that old school authoritarian dynamic between, you know, for example, men and women in this case, in this example. Um, But but what you just said reminds me of then this, right? The dog whistle politics, this piece around how the coded racial appeals have reinvented racism and wrecked the middle class. Can you talk a little bit more about how you just said relates to how this works with people in terms of fomenting that you get to, and i I get to and you don't get to do whatever, yeah, so or have whatever.
2: let me go let me go back to biography a little bit. Um, so so I'm a scholar, I study racism, you know, I started by studying the legal construction of race, how race is socially constructed, but after that, I really wanted to grapple with the question of racism, not. The definition of categories, you know, how do we define who's white? How do we define who's black? But what is racism? What is what is race hatred? How does it work? What, what does it do? And, you know, I was really kind of working within a tradition that I think is prevalent, is dominant right now. And it's a tradition that says racism is basically a way of structuring society where whites are dominant, whites are supreme, and non-whites are inferior or dominated, right? So it was a really, it was a vision of society that was white over non-white. And it's very, very common right now. You can think about Ibram Kendi's work, for example, or right? he's really, and, there, and it's not that that hierarchy isn't there. It's just that it stopped working for me as I was trying to think about big racial dynamics in society. And in particular, starting in 2008, at the same time that Barack Obama was elected, I really wanted to understand why we had racialized mass incarceration. Why was it that we had gone from 300,000 people in prison and jails in the early 1970s to 2.3 million people in prison and jails by by the late 2008, 2010, by that era? What had happened? What had produced that? And then Obama's election was really important because At the same time that I was studying racialized mass incarceration, the Obama administration started a practice of mass deportation. They started deporting people over the course of the Obama administration, three million families ripped apart at rates that were unprecedented in American history. And, you know, I I happen to know um, Barack Obama, by having overlapped with him in law school. But even if I didn't know him personally, He's no racist. He's incredibly sensitive, thoughtful, generous, humane. And yet his administration was busy building a machinery of violence against non-white communities. And I, and I say mm. that because it wasn't just deportation in the abstract. It was disproportionately targeting Latinos, targeting Latinos far in excess of their proportion of the undocumented population. How to so explain that right? <laughs> why? And why? If I, when I tried to go back to to what I was comfortable with, what I knew, the framework that i used, racism is about racist white people, white culture, white institutions, white da da da, da against people of color. I'm like, this isn't making sense. This isn't mm. working. And I came to understand it was, a, it was a couple of quick moves. One that this was politics. That that that, that Obama was engaged in politics. That mass incarceration had arisen through politics. But that politics wasn't the exclusion of racism. Politics had become a new way in which racism was being expressed and mobilized in our society. And mm. it was just—it was this just kind of this epiphany for me. I was like, "Oh my God!" The Republicans, after the civil rights movement, start using coded language that talks about law and order and thugs and gangbangers and criminals, and then they govern. By fu- By funding the police, militarizing the p- police and building prisons, and the Democrats initially can 't figure out how to respond, and then they figure out that the best way to to beat Republicans is to imitate them and that 's Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton talking about super predators, and then Barack Obama saying, realizing the Republicans are going to present him as weak on immigration and he needs to get ahead of it by deporting as many people as he mm. can. This was politics and then so that was Well, it's not racism, it's politics. Next realization, no, no, politics is racism. It's this new form of racism. And then finally, this really important realization. This form of politics was being used on behalf of some of society's wealthiest elements. People were profiting from stoking racism. The Republican Party had formerly been known as, had been proud to claim the label of, the party of big business. The party of big business had been in a pattern of losing to the Democratic Party, the working man's party. They put themselves in a position to win election after election by reconstituting themselves around white racial fear and resentment. That is, racism had come to be weaponized by powerful elites against all the rest of us. And and I, I want to emphasize this point. Is there white racism? Yeah, there is. There's big problems with that. I mean, white privilege and and unconscious bias and uh, you know, uh, Karens and yeah, all of that. Uh, right, Where's it all coming from? What makes it so virulent today? What makes the police so violent, so murderous against black and brown communities? It's not white racism in general. It's Donald Trump, it's Richard Nixon, it's Ronald Reagan, it's frankly Bill and Hillary Clinton in their time telling stories about threatening people of color and then encouraging police departments to treat brown and black people as fundamentally lawless and violent. Mm. And it's not just a political party, it's the right-wing echo chamber, it's Fox News, it's Laura Ingraham, it's, it's um, 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 Sean Hannity, oh, Limbaugh, they stoke racial hate for profit all the time, right? That is, where is the energy? So, so there's this, you know, I use this metaphor, racism's this noxious weed. Okay, who's fertilizing it? Who, who's who's giving it grow lights, right? Mm. Who Who's constantly watering it? These are the people who are profiting from division. And when we can see profit as a motive, we can and start to understand what's happened to us very, very differently in terms of policy, in terms of politics, political p- parties, in terms of why racial division and conflict is so bad, and also in terms of economic suffering for the for the majority of Americans.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think those are that triangle, or if it is a tri, I think it is, yeah, that's important to emphasize. And as you're talking, you know, I had mentioned off camera before, and some of the listeners and viewers know this, and some don't, but I spent nearly 20 years as a, you know, news anchor and a reporter. And I've worked for, you know, Fox and I've worked for NBC and I've worked for... You worked for Fox? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> well, I did. And, and here in Boston, I worked for an O&O. And I remember when I was interviewing Mitt Romney, for example, I was having to, you know, I was trying to ask him some of the tougher questions. And I was chastised because then he was going to not grant the station more interviews. And so he was threatening exposure and engagement if he were feeling discomfort, you know, uncomfortable right. about my line of inquiry. And, right. um, and so therefore, I became the pariah within the station. And so it, it would go on like this. And then I worked for tri- Tribune stations and Sinclair stations, which are very similar in mindset. And, um, and even in other arenas, just the whole idea of suicide by cop. Whose mugshot do we put up? What right. stories are we reporting? How it's the framing of the story. I remember, you know, as a member of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists many years ago, when I was lobbying for the whole idea of undocumented workers as opposed to illegal immigrants as the de facto right. perm to sort of have be used in print, digital, and, you know, broadcast media versus the one that in fact won out. And, you know, I mean, this speaks to the, the combination that sort of conjoined twins to use Abram Kendi's phrase of, you know, the way in which um, in his book, what does he say? It's, it's racism. And I forget that other twin there, but the point that media and politics are very much intertwined around this idea of influencing culture. And then from a somatic psychotherapeutic standpoint, for those who listen around those ideas, the way in which that influences our limbic system, our amygdala, which is what gets fired up and what grows, yes. which is our oldest part of the brain, which is our fear center, and the way in which our limbic system stores memories, which is the way in which we kind of capture images and the way that we capture our sensations in our bodies when we're taking in what's on the TV or seeing whatever it is that's happening out there in the streets, and then the way in which a narrative that they can, that then gets fed into that can strengthen what we'll call a hardened thought or a belief, which then then lead us to come to a place where we feel as though lawnmower might be the right way to go and not inquire more deeply about that. So there's a whole physiological so parallel that goes along with that. And so shifting from, you know, point a to point b requires a real look on the inside out i think as well as the outside in
2: yeah you know i tend to think about it in terms of narrative in terms of stories but i think that the way you're expressing it really captures some of the some of the most important elements of what's happening so think about a phrase like law and order right that when trump tweets out a phrase like law and order what he's doing is He's triggering a deeply internalized set of stories that the right has been telling ever since Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon. And, and the story used to be fairly explicit. It doesn't have to be explicit anymore because it's so deeply internalized. The story is, hey, there are some people who are fundamentally unlike us. Their, 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 their basic nature is to be lawless and violent and dangerous. They're an immediate threat. To good, decent, hardworking, innocent, unprotected people. And these stories, that's the sort of colorblind version, but the, but the, but the imagery that often goes along with it is dangerous, threatening black people, innocent white people, often a uh, white women, right? And that story, once it becomes internalized, it really exists at the level of the amygdala, at the level of this internalized of worldviews that that don't have to rise to the level of conscious thought to find expression in a very strong fear response in our bodies. What politicians are doing is they are intentionally triggering intense fears that, that ultimately are connected to racist stereotypes, but they're doing so in a way that that triggers these, these intense fears, but allows people, encourages people to think my reaction is not racism. My reaction is just common sense. Of course, I should be afraid of criminal illegals. Of course, I should be afraid of terrorists. Of course, I should be for law and order and against anarchists, right? That's just common sense. When the source of that, of the, the sort of uh, you know, the sort of the, the the rush in the in the body that that intense, you know, that sort of visceral fear. That is ultimately these racist stereotypes that we've internalized about uh, African Americans, about Latinos, uh, uh, frankly, also about Asian Americans, about the mm-hmm. Chinese. Right? Uh, Donald Trump is doing a lot to redirect attention away from his failed response to the pandemic onto China, and he pretends that it's China as geography that's where the disease arose but people aren't afraid of china as a geographic matter they're afraid of china because we we have these internalized racist fears about the chinese about asians also that can that that can be triggered this way right? but these are the physiological responses that they're attempting to trigger knowing that people are driven foremost by fear and that it's very hard to step back from fear, step back from a sense that we're under threat.
1: Yeah. And, and I think also othering is a feed to narcissism and elitism, which can be a way to make yourself feel better. And so if, you know, I can not be that, whatever that is, whether it's Asian or whatever it is, and I'm not that, then there's a way that I can feel better in a way, Um, you know, in terms of the fear response, in terms of like, I'm safer because I'm feeling safer, my perception of safety is that it's greater as opposed to opening up and questioning and being curious makes me feel vulnerable. And then I'm like, wait, I don't know. Maybe I'm tender. I feel like I could be attacked. Maybe I'll be lumped into one of them. And then, you you know, that goes into the whole limbic response and the way in which the body then says, no, it's safer on this side and I'm going to be more I guess we would call it in relational life therapy language, the adaptive child, the part that's more rigid, less flexible, less curious, less open-minded and less um, open to possibility. So so interesting. I I tend to express
2: a very similar insight, the more in group terms, in terms of thinking about status competition. Um, But you're absolutely right. All of us are asking questions about where do I fit in this society? Um, who threatens me? Who are my allies? How can I be esteemed? How can I avoid being demeaned and denigrated? We're all asking those questions, and I think you're you're kind of expressing it in this in this language of of you know a sort of personal identity. I would think about it. I think it's very closely related in this more group based. You know, what what group am I am I connected with? How are they valued? This is such an important point. Let me tell you something that I think will probably surprise you. I assume it's going to surprise your (sighs) listeners. So for the last three years, I've been running, um, I've been working with communication specialists and working with national pollsters to run surveys and focus groups to figure out how we can tell a new story so that we can reject division and come together. And in that process, I've been testing The power of the right's racial fear messages to see just how effective they are and with what audiences. And here's what's stunning. We already know that the majority whites are convinced by these fear stories. The same proportion, the same percentage of African Americans are also convinced by them. And just slightly more, but effectively the same proportion of Latinos are also convinced by them. These racial fear stories are convincing to the majority of Democrats and the majority of union households. So we might, you know, I I think a lot of people as progressives want to tell themselves this story in which nobody's going to believe the language about criminally illegal and Muslim terrorists. Everybody understands it's race. And if people support those messages, they must be racist. They must be closet Klan members who just won't admit it. That's just really wrong, (laughs) right? Latinos, African-Americans, union households, Democrats, agree with, find convincing those stories because we're all trying to position ourselves in terms of like, how can I feel good about myself? And right. here you've got these right. political leaders saying, some people are deserving, some people are hardworking, some people contribute, we need to take care of them, but some people are dangerous and undeserving and a threat and we need to keep them out and we need to build a wall against them. And people are like, where do I fit? Yeah. Right? And it's like, it's so we so want to be like, we want to be esteemed. We want to be have a value on us. That's what makes this sort of messaging so dangerous. It's broadly convincing to the majority of Americans.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that that's so good to note because, I mean, again, we're human mammals. We have a physiology that responds to threat and perception of threat, whether or not we're actually in an actual life threat situation. And because of that, we do have similar responses in that way. And so I guess my next question to you is, you talked a lot about, well, if we broke it, we can fix it. And if we have divide and conquer, we can have unite and build. So can we talk a little bit about then, what do we do if we're all sort of, yeah. you know, subject so, to this?
2: So the, so the good news is through these focus groups and through this polling, we were actually able to come up with a story that is very effective at defeating This sort of fear based politics and building a sense of human connection. Um, And here, let me reference my most recent book. It's a 2019 book. It's called Merge Left Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. And let me also mention, and this might be a more immediate resource um, uh, for your audience RaceClassAcademy.com. RaceClassAcademy.com. It's a website in which I've uploaded a series of 12 very short videos plus discussion guides to try and break these ideas down into really digestible chunks, but also give people the tools they need so that they can think about it and talk about it with others. But here's the, here's the basic idea. We can build cross-racial solidarity once we understand that other people, that our neighbors are not the threat, that in fact, we have more in common than what divides us. But the real danger in our lives comes from powerful elites pushing racial conflict and racial division. And that the solution is for all of us to come together, not in a sort of, um, you know, kumbaya, hallelujah, easy, but there's a lot of hard work, but bridge the differences. The differences are real, bridge those differences. Because when we bridge those differences, that's the only time we can actually take care of each other and ensure that our families are taken care of. And mm-hmm. You've already sort of highlighted the, the most crystallized version of that. The strategy among powerful elites is divide and conquer. And if that's their strategy, the pragmatic way forward for all the rest of us is unite and build. We have to reject division. We have to build bridges uh, across those divisions. And by uniting, we can actually rebuild this democracy, uh, reclaim government for ourselves, make sure that government switches from violence against communities of color to actual repair for those communities so that we can build a truly egalitarian society.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And and I mean, I I love that you're doing this work. And and I know that, you know, we are two months away from an election. This is not a joke. This is real time. And yes, it's still the pandemic and COVID. And Yes, it's still um, you know the Black Lives Matter and the uprising, and yes, it's also still the climate crisis, which is part of the reason why you said you're at an Airbnb right now in Utah am, and not I in am. California because of all of the fires and chaos there.
2: The these are these are all related. So, I've recently been talking to a lot of environmental movements, and in fact, in in just a little bit, I'm going to be um, um, talking with the group, the Sunrise Movement, an amazing movement. Um, They've got a new book out, um, The Green New Deal, Why We Must, How We Can. I've contributed a chapter. But I've recently been talking to a lot of environmentalists. Um, And and one of them, Elise Lane, said something to me that really crystallized it. She said, look, our government and our economy right now is being run by a group of people that are more interested in profit." Than in protecting the planet, making sure we have a survivable climate for our children and our grandchildren, even for their own children and grandchildren. They care more about profit than the survivability of the planet. Why would those same folks sacrifice profit in order to protect us from a pandemic? It's the same group. These people who are running our country do not fundamentally care about the majority of us, they care more about their profit. They care more about their power. Mm. These things are really, really deeply connected. How then do these greedy, self-interested individuals who are power-obsessed stay in power Through divide and conquer, right? So, and this is the reason I'm talking to the environmental movement. You think about somebody like, you think about the Koch brothers, right? So, the, the, the Koch um, own uh, one of them recently deceased, but they were the owners of um, one of them continues to own the largest privately held petrochemical conglomerate in the United States worth billions of dollars their profits depend upon continued extraction and burning of fossil fuels. The more they can strip away regulation and pollute the environment, the more barrels of money they can make for themselves. How do they continue to profit from pollution, they fund grassroots uh, white supremacist racial resentment groups. They funded and helped create the Tea Party movement, which was anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, anti-Black, and anti-Obama as their strategy to con- to, to, to continue reaping whirlwind profits from petrochemicals. Right. Right? So the the strategy of the wealthy elites right now is to sow social division and discord primarily around race but not not exclusively all of these culture war politics that we're seeing around gender around abortion uh, around uh, religious xenophobia and and uh, you know the place of white evangelicals all of this culture war politics is being cynically funded and promoted by powerful elites who understand that when we were fighting our neighbors, we're, we have very few defenses against the rapacious elite who are busy running the system for themselves. And they're, they're not just running it in a sense of like, wow, gross economic inequality. They are letting the, They are pushing the planet towards climate collapse. We are right now experiencing the harbingers of climate collapse. And their response? roll back environmental regulations make more money for themselves so, so these the 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 pandemic and the way in which you know 190,000 deaths for average Americans boom times for Wall Street or climate change and it's you know the devastation in the wild forest in California and hurricanes in the in the south and southeast and yet boom times for Wall Street all of this, is is fundamentally connected to increasing racial division, the murder of George Floyd. It's a politics that says fear and resent people of color, that's your real enemy, that has led, that has generated a divided electorate that has allowed the rich to continue to run the economy uh, and the environment for their profit rather than for our protection.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying because part of it is distraction. And then part of it is just hate, right? Like a real aversion, meaning like what you're distracting it with isn't just ice cream. It's like racism and that's deadly. Um, but part of it, I remember after 9-11, when I was reporting, there was a whole upsurge and, um, you know, the whole idea of uh, uh, like OK OK Magazine and like, uh, you know, People Magazine and like these kinds of like, you know, the reality TV shows and things like that. And it was like this whole distraction while at the same time, we were also not being able to show the coffins that were coming back from the Middle East and that we were not allowed to kind of actually report what was going on and what was happening in terms of, you know, once we once we um, sent troops over there. And so it's just so interesting that all of this is sort of in service to keeping the focus of attention on what it is. And again, for the listeners and the mindfulness people who listen and practice mindfulness and stuff, this is why we practice mindfulness. It's to steady our attention, to stay grounded, relaxed, and alert, and include in our panoramic awareness that mindful, friendly curiosity around what else? Is this so? When we ask that Zen koan, when we kind of inquire that, when we lean into that, it begs for us to see, is this true in my own direct experience? And as we continue to practice, it's around well, what is my perception based off of? Yes. How is it that what I'm seeing may not be what someone else is seeing or what another living being like a deer or a cat is seeing? How is that different? And yet at the same time, how can we deny our interconnectedness, breathing the same air, you know, in the case of plants, you know, CO2, like how are we, how are we, in all of this. And and that, that is the way that I sort of think of applied mindfulness, embodied spirituality, the way in which these intersect, because yes, there's a piece there that it's very much around calm your nervous system, gather your thoughts, but it can be in service to being able to be curious about, ah, that thing, greed, you know, that thing, greed, greed, hatred, and aversion. Those are the greed, hatred and delusion. Those are the three, you know, core causes that the Buddha taught about suffering. Um, That and that there's a way out of suffering, right? But that suffering is sort of a fact of life. Pain is, like pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. You've probably heard that before. Um, But that that core piece of the craving, the greed, which in your case, you're talking about, in this case, financial extraction in some ways, but really about power and power over. And that grandiosity is, is so interesting because the whole core piece of why mindfulness is necessary is, Because we feel separate. And of course, if we're grandiose and we're up here and everyone else is down there, then we have to be separate, right? Because if we're on, you know, a more spatially connected place, then we're not separate. So we feel the belonging that we actually are and can lean into. And so it's kind of just, I'm just trying to sort of weave all of this together because we're not talking about politics right now. We're talking about what it's like to be embodied, connective humans that are not only on the earth, but of it. And how to be stewards of our own selves and question what's really going on inside and then question what's happening out there so that we can integrate some of that into how we show up, where we vote, how we do things, what we lobby for, what we participate in, how we shop and all the kinds of things that we that we think about, about ourselves and about others. I love it. I love it.
2: (laughs) It, It's so it's so you're so right here. You know, here's this other language to use, but but it's really saying what you're saying, and I really love what you're saying. The only way the powerful few can continue to run society for their benefit is if they shatter social solidarity, if they push us away from a sense of connection with each other and towards a sense of fear and threat from each other. In order to respond to that, we need to purposefully rebuild our sense of connection to others. Now, we can't do that if we remain in a state of fearfulness towards others. And in order to to get past the fear, in, in my language, I would say we need to engage in critical thinking. We need to be like, who benefits from this? who's telling me this? Is this really true? Right. All the sort of questions that you're, that you're identifying that you're surfacing in terms of mindfulness, you know, as a, as a university professor, I'm like, Oh, this is what we do. This is critical thinking. Right. But but they're all the same questions. The ability to step back for a moment and say, I'm being told a story. That story might not be true. How, how can I evaluate it? Um, what values does it call uh, uh, upon? Who does it ask me to be? And I think that when we, when we develop those sets of questions and we apply them to the current context, that allows us to say, you know, the biggest threat in my life is not coming from other people like me who just might have different skin color, different national origin, different religion, different sexual orientation. You know, love is love. People are people. It's all cool. They're not the threat. But there is a threat. That threat is coming from these people who are pushing division. Mm -hmm. Let me instead understand that building connection, it's not just this ideal. It is the thing I need to do to protect myself and to take care of my loved ones and to build a sort of the most capacious sense of neighborhood that I can. Right. And, And it's it's very right. This is this is what we're doing. Here are the core questions. Who am I in this society? Who threatens me? Who are my allies, right? It's all, they're all relational questions. And what Donald Trump is saying is, hey, you know, maybe you're a good, hardworking person, but you're under threat from these dangerous, lawless, violent others. And ultimately, you can't count on government because it betrays you. So your real friends are the rich and powerful, the job creators. That's their story. Progressives need to say, well, who are we? We're all people who are doing the best we can and I wanna take care of others if we can. And who threatens us? People telling us that our neighbors are actually a threat in our lives and are pushing division. And who are our allies? Everybody who will work with us to make sure that we can take care of our own family and that we can help work with them to take care of theirs as well, right? This is a story about how we build connection with others. Um, And then also, how we build connection with the planet, right? Who are we in relationship to this planet? Who are we in relationship to animals and plants? Um, do, are, are we fundamentally separate? Or do we have that sense of, of, of connection?
1: Right, right. You know, I, I, I love that we sort of came full circle. And I mean, I think that a lot of the things that I talk a lot about are, you know, more collective ways of thinking that other structure, other societies are structured differently, we sort of have this meritocracy and this, you know, idea of, you know, go West young man and, you know, sort of make your way and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And all of those are the kinds of narratives that we've talked about. And that from a mindfulness perspective, we have virya, which is sort of this like discipline, this energized sort of sense of like commitment to something. Like if someone's getting a PhD, you would want to have a certain quality of that, right? An effort, a a commitment, a passion that's directed. But that—that's not the same as just saying, you know, it's all about me, and you know, I exist as an island, right? And 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 we know this is not true because we literally come out of wombs connected to another human, and we forget that. And so, you know, I, I think that for the invitation that you're offering is there are ways in which when we are able to check and see where is this really coming from, and really look at the way in which we can do it in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our families that we can start there. We can go to your um, raceclassacademy.com. We can certainly find out more about the teachings there. And again, invite the inquiry because the feeling of separation is in some ways an evolutionary glitch. We've talked a lot about this in other podcasts in terms of the way in which we have a negativity bias, you know, the tribal communities of 150 people. And if you don't quite look like me or I haven't seen you before, then I may wanna check twice about whether or not you're the right person and those kinds of things. But that we we have other things now that we can come online about and we can use to check that. So it's just a really beautiful invitation. And um, I know we're out of time, but I just want to invite you to sort of have any parting thoughts or or you know closure around this conversation today.
2: I I just I guess I would say I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think that in you know that it's one of those experiences in which we're using different frames and different vocabulary but 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 the core intuition is the same and and I so I would distill it to this social solidarity has to be our north star and this this is this is an ideal that honors our deepest values but it's also a pragmatic requirement we can see clearly now that our major social institutions have been hijacked and now fail the majority of us and fail the planet we have to rebuild our social institutions what can be the guidepost to help us rebuild the idea that our fates are linked the idea our fates are linked social solidarity is key we've known this before the unofficial motto of the us president this, the motto on the seal of the us president is e pluribus unum out of many One, When that model is violated, our society ends up being ruined for most of us. Our planet ruined for most of us. We have to embrace the idea of social solidarity out of many one linked fate. That has to be our North Star.
1: Beautiful. Uh, Ian Haney-Lopez, unite and build uh, all kinds of amazing scholarship out there. And again, your website, Race Class Academy, you have multiple websites, but that one in particular, and um, we'll be sharing your other links as well online. Thank you so much for joining us on Rerooted today. It's my honor and pleasure uh, to include you and thanks for sharing your wisdom.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate it. I've genuinely enjoyed this conversation.
1: Take good care.